This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. Praise Jesus. All right. So, today we are having the final part. I actually thought that we're teaching something different today. And sometime during the week, I was re- redirected um, to just conclude today and take questions from those who have questions so that we can answer if there are any burdens in anybody's heart concerning the topic of charismatics. We'll be able to answer the questions. So, um, so that's what we'll be doing today. We're taking questions, and we put we put out the notification, and I hope that um, those online and those here will have questions for us to answer. So, if you have any questions, you can just um, type it in the in the live chats. You can just go ahead and type it in the live chats. Just putting your questions there, and I would love to answer them to the best of my ability, and. Uh, Hope that the it will edify you and the answer will edify you. Hallelujah. So guys, please help me check if people put up their questions so that we can answer them. Do we have any questions yet? No questions? Hallelujah. So in the meantime, till the questions come in, we'll just do an overview, a summary of everything we talked about um, so far. We started by talking about the history of the charismatic movements as it really happened. We talked about the history, then we talked about um, emotionalism and charismatics. You know, there's a couple of, there's there's some good points to learn from the history of Pentecostalism, which, um, which will help us really understand why the movement is the way it is. It makes a lot of things make sense. And it, it also informs us and gives us direction so that those of us who consider ourselves to be charismatics or Pentecostals will know how to build better on the foundation that has been laid by those that, um, that went ahead of us. Hallelujah. So from the, from the start... From the very beginning, we see the beauty of the way the movement started. There was something beautiful about the way the movement started. It was started by people with um, people that are not considered, like Apostle Paul put this in the book of First Corinthians, people that are not considered wise, strong, great by earthly standards. The people that started this thing were people that were, you know, generally considered of not much education. And these people were able to see the power of God in their lives and they were able to do so much and they were able to, you know, um, ignite a fire that, that, um, a fire that became a conflagration that took over the whole world. Hallelujah. And in the beauty of that is also, in, in the, the beauty of the way it started also shows us the issues with it, right? Because of the way they started, um, that the, the beauty of the way they started also led to um, certain deficiencies. And, um, you know, there was a lack of systematization of, you know, the Pentecostal movement. There was no, there wasn't much, um, you know, there wasn't much um, deep theologizing about um, Pentecostalism from the history, we know that there was even a time, there was a movement sometime in the middle of the 20th century when those that took over from the first, um, the guys that started the Pentecostal movement around the 1950s, there about, there was a movement of Pentecostalism that was actually visibly against studying theology, systematization, and all those kinds of things because they perceived that it was um, not helpful to the move of the spirit, so to speak, right? And that that DNA, that 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 culture, that value system has always been a strong strain in the Pentecostal movement, where people enjoy 
the effects of the um, theology of the charismatic movement over deep study, um, systematic study, and um, you know that kind of stuff. Hallelujah. So and so, what we le- what what it led to, obviously, is the fact that there were a lot of breakouts, a lot of different breakouts, um, sub movements within the Pentecostal movements. Hallelujah. There are a lot of sub breakouts, a lot of sub breakouts. Even I myself, I can't hear myself. The volume is really low. So there were a lot of sub breakouts inside of the Pentecostal movement, and the reason is because there was a lack of systematization. That lack of systematization led to many sub-breakouts and because what it means to be a Pentecostal was never clear. What it means to be a charismatic was never clear because there was no systematization. And so what we have is, you know, this is a very, very interesting trend, very funny trend. So before now, before the 16th century, what we had was just the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Right? What we had was just the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Right? And then the Protestants broke out. And then after the Protestants broke out, we had a proliferation of many new um, sub, sub-Protestant denominations. We had the Anabaptists, we had the Quakers, we had the um, Calvinists, we had the, Lut- we had the Lutherans, we had the um, you know, Baptists. You know, and all, all those guys, all those persons, all those, you know, groups. Hallelujah. So we had all those subgroups. Praise God. But then, so we, we still had the Catholic Church and we had all these groups. It's right in North America, some parts of England, right? But something very interesting happened. After the Protestant, after the Azusa Street Revival that led to the Protestant um, movements, right? What it now did was that it now, result, it now resulted in a proliferation of even many more subunits. So among Protestants today, we have, among um, Pentecostals today, we have so, 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 so many. So it's like as if with every breakout, with every new move, there was a multiplication of many subunits, so to speak. Hallelujah. So, and it's, it seemed like as if with every new breakout, there's proliferation of more breakouts. With every new breakout, there's proliferation of more breakouts, you know, and all that. So, what does that tell us? If we, uh, and, and like I said something in that meeting, I said that um, the story of Pentecostalism is still being written. Pentecostalism is barely a hundred years old, barely, barely a hundred years old, and the story of Pentecostalism is still being written. So, we can deliberately begin to shift from being um, a movement of pure moves that is purely about moves to a movement that is deep and strong in sound doctrine, in God's word, and in systematization. Hallelujah. Then we talked about emotionalism and charismatics itself. And we tried to differentiate it. And we talked about the fact that emotionalism and charismatics are not the same thing. I must be careful not to substitute um, brass for gold. I must be careful not to substitute brass for gold. One of the weird things that happens is that in the process of um, doing charismatics, there is something called emotionalism. And emotionalism refers to all those things that are our, all those things in the realm of our emotions and psychology with regards to the move of the spirit. And we talked about how that emotionalism is not exactly limited to Christianity or charismatics, but is, um, it can be found in every kind of activity where you have some kind of ecstatic, you know, ecstatic occurrence. All ecstatic events tend to come with some form of emotionalism or the other. So whenever you have ecstatic events, like concerts, with a musician there, or um, a place where you have 
some kind of um, worship of the senses. Whatever you have, a, you know, ecstatic movements, you're going to see a lot of emotionalism. And so we try to differentiate the gift of the spirit and quote the substantive gift of the spirit from emotionalism. Emotionalism is about how we react to those gifts of the spirit. So emotionalism are the things like when we fall under the spirit, or fall under the, what we call falling under the anointing, when we scream, when we cry, when we feel goosebumps, you know, all those things that are a matter of our reaction to the value that we have placed on those kinds of atmospheres. Hallelujah. And there's something very interesting about emotionalism, which you must also pay attention to. Do you know that it is very possible? Let me say it like this. And over worship of an over expectation of emotionalism, excessively leaning into emotionalism and creating an atmosphere for emotionalism excessively can be a symptom of lack of faith in God. And this is what I mean. This is what I mean by that. It's easy to create an atmosphere where people fall under the anointing. In fact, the power of God may not be in a place and people fall under the anointing. Fall in quotes. We see this happen outside. So it's pretty easy. When we find out that it's very easy to get all those kind of nice experiences, when we can get people to fall under the anointing, we can get people to feel goosebumps, we can get people to feel the ecstasy, we can get people to cry, we can get people to laugh, we can get people to roll on the floor and all those kinds of things. Because those things are cheap and those things are easy, we can begin to create an atmosphere to focus on those things and to enjoy those things because those things feel nice. And the actual move of the spirit, we won't do it. Because those things are easy. In fact, I suspect that the lack of faith, the unbelief, or the real assurance that God can heal the sick and do all these kind of crazy things that we don't normally expect, that lack of assurance that God can do that is what makes people to chase after those emotionalism excessively. Because this is how this is a very good question to ponder. This is a very good way of thinking about it. Imagine a Christian meeting where there is no falling under the anointing, no goosebumps allowed, no screaming, no crying, no nothing. No emotionalism. We see in this meeting, no emotionalism is allowed. The only thing we are going to be doing will be raw gifts of the Spirit. Heal the sick, give an accurate, actual word of knowledge, give a real prophecy, give a real word of wisdom, do a real miracle. No emotionalism whatsoever. Would people still gather? Will there be any real difference in the way we do the services? We need to be sure. We must be sure that what we are calling move of the spirits is not just emotionalism. Because that's not the move of the spirits. We have to be careful that what we are calling the move of the spirit is not just an atmosphere of emotionalism that we are creating and not an actual move of the spirit. We have to be careful that we are not substituting brass for gold. We have to be very careful. We have to be very careful. And these things are subtle. These things are actually subtle. These things are actually subtle. The move of the Spirit is the action of the Spirit on someone's heart. So, for example, if you sing a hymn and a spiritual song, and the song, you know, does something in your heart, opens your eyes, and, give you, and gives you a revelation knowledge, you know that is a move of the Spirit. Do you understand that? You know that is a move of the Spirit. You sing a hymn, like in Christ alone. You sing a good hymn like that. And then in the place of singing a hymn, the songs do something to a man, and revelation comes, and the man's eyes are opened, and something happens in the man and changes the man's life. That's the move of the Spirit. Then, there are chant songs, where we chant certain tunes, which are very nice and very good. 
right? And let me also come back to that so I don't need to. You know, with that chant songs that give that give us that feel good emotionalism feeling. These songs help us to feel feel the spirit. It helps us to feel the spirit. Do you know that it's possible for you to have a meeting where you'll be singing chant songs because they feel good, but actual edification is not happening, and we're feeling good throughout. Do you understand that? Do you know it's very possible that as a gospel musician, as a gospel minister, you actually get to the point where you begin to focus on writing chant songs. Because chant songs, singing chants, they are not necessarily edifying. They just make you feel good. And you focus on writing chant songs, and that's what you'll be writing. And you'll never actually write to sit down, sit down and write a gospel hymn that is ministry in melody or gospel in melody because the chant songs once you sing them right with the right chords the right tune and the right melody the bass guitar is on point the spirit is now here <laughs> so there's a real danger real danger that actually requires present mindedness to prevent yourself from substituting emotionalism for actual charismatics for actual charismatics. We must be very careful of that danger. Another danger of excess of emotionalism is distraction and um, lack of focus on the things that are important. Well, I guess it's like saying the same thing anyway. But I was thinking of it more in the light of um, instead of us be doing something actually the gospel, we are following the emotionalism with and all that. Praise God. But that being said, emotionalism is a gift. Those feel-good moments have value. They are good. They are good for us. They enable us to enjoy it. And that's why there's no system. And we talked about the work of Jonathan Edwards and all that. There's no system. No matter how much someone's emotionalism offends you, right? One of the things that you can never do is to stop people or rob people of their emotionalism. You can't. There's nothing you can do. You can never tell people, don't be emotionalistic. No, don't respond. Don't feel goosebumps. The power, I felt the power of God touch me. I will not follow that anointing. You can't tell people that. The job of the minister is to regulate it and ensure that focus is not diverted from the important things, one, and people don't do it excessively and get distracted from what is important in the meeting. That's the job of the minister. So like Apostle Paul did for the Corinthian church, he would tell them that the spirit of the subject is subject to the prophet. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Very powerful statement. Timeless statement. So you must never get to the point where we are doing something and saying something and that thing that we are saying and all the things we are feeling, you know, makes us to divert away from what is the most important, what are the most important things, you know. So we as believers must be careful we as believers must be careful to ensure that we are not substituting brass for gold. Praise God. We must stay on what is important. We must not... Um, I, I like to reference um, Dr. Michael Brown's book that he wrote in response to John MacArthur. Right? And he talked about how that... You know, he talked about his past criticisms of the excesses that happened in the Protestant movement in America and all that. And he wrote a very lovely poem. Was it like a poem? Yeah, something like a poem. Very nice poem. And in the poem, he wrote some things about how we are gathering and we are falling under anointing so much and we are crying and weeping in the presence of God and we are laughing and jumping, rejoicing the Holy Ghost and all that. But our head, our people with migraines are going back with migraines. Our people that are crippled are going back with crippling and all that and all that and all that. And he said so many things. And, you know, in pondering and thinking about the top, this subject matter more and more made me realize how that is possible. In fact, how that is even likely if care is not taken. That's, that scenario is actually very likely if care is not taken. And it will not be because the power of God is not at work. It will be because people are not actually expecting God to actually move. But what they are looking for is emotionalism. Where your focus, where your assurance, where the appropriation of God's grace to actually do substantive things in people's lives 
is gone. But what you are looking for is trusting God for people to fall under the anointing. And trusting God for us to have a good time. Not trusting God for things to actually happen in people's lives. Because when we're talking about the real issues, it's a different matter. It takes faith. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, having said that, then we did an overview of charismatics and we talked about all the things that we can see summarily about, the, you know, about charismatics generally. And one of the things I would like to really emphasize that you see very consistently is that wherever God's word goes, the power of God follows. Wherever God's word goes, the power of God follows. The gospel is the word of God. The gospel is the will of God. Wherever it goes, power ought to follow it. Power ought to follow it. This is the reason why secessionism is a very lazy... It's shocking that <clears throat> secessionism is something that comes from a systematic um, tradition. It's unfortunate that it comes from a systematic tradition, but yet it's the work of very poor scholarship. Very poor scholarship. Very poor. All the places where we see the reason for charismatics. All the places where we see the reason for charismatics in, in the scriptures from old to new is always as a result of God releasing his power to carry out his agenda. Unless God's agenda on the earth ended in the first century AD, then it is, does not make sense to say that gifts of the Spirit or move, the move of God or the power of God being made available to do miracles has ended in the first century AD. It does not make sense. It does not make sense. Because wherever the kingdom of God is, the power of God also follows. This is so strong that even while Jesus was alive, when he was sending them out, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 10, when he was sending them out to preach the gospel, the Bible says that he also gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. So, there's nobody. That's why, you know, the breath of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 that, see, signs and wonders accompany this salvation that, you know, that was taught to us. Signs and wonders accompanied it according to the will of God. Signs and wonders. There's never a time when God sends people on a message to deliver a message that the power to fulfill the message does not follow it. It has never happened. It's so, bad. It's, so, it's so interesting that we see this throughout the scriptures from Moses' time. Let's even use things like, let's even take it from the beginning, when God started dealing with people. You know, when Noah came on board and had a message, the power of God which was, in the, was demonstrated in the flood. When God sent angels to Abraham telling him he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that agenda that God had was manifested with the power of God. When God told Abraham that in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, God supernaturally made him have a son. Whenever you see God's agenda, God's power is always supplied to make that agenda happen. Do you understand that? When Moses showed up to go and do something, God gave him power to do it. It's so funny that even minor prophets that nobody knows their names, like uh, Jeroboam has started making um, idols, altars unto idol for the northern kingdom of Israel. God sent an, a, a prophet from Judah to go and tell him that his entire family will be wiped out. And the Bible says that Jer- Jeroboam stretched forth his hand towards the prophet and the man's heart with that. And he prayed for the man. And the man's heart became okay. Yes, I think I got the story right. So, even prophets that we don't even know their names, minor prophets like that, when God sends them on a message, there is a power that is accompanying the message. Praise God. Uh, uh, Yoruba people will say, eh, Aromonisha fire to you. That means, he will send you a message and with your, his chest will be there to back you up. That's why Apostle Paul tells us that the kingdom of God is not in what word, but in what? Power. Wherever the kingdom of God shows up, the power of God also shows up. Wherever the kingdom of God shows up, the power of God also shows up. Wherever the will of God is at work, the power of God is also at work. 
In fact, you can't separate God's will from his power. The, 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 the pursuit of God's will by nature creates and appropriates the power of God. From the very beginning, God said, let us, let us, once he says let us, power goes out to fulfill what he has done. So, we cannot gather people as believers and say the will of God is salvation, that all men can see God, that we are talking about an all-powerful God, that the power does not, is not available. It does not make sense. It does not make sense that we're talking about a God that is love, a God that is compassionate, but there's no power of God to demonstrate the compassion. It does not make sense. It does not make sense. Praise God. It does not make sense to say we are seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all principalities and powers. We are seated in Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, far above all principalities and powers, right? And there is no power to demonstrate authority over demons. How does that make sense? It doesn't. So, whenever the will of God is demonstrated, the power of God is also demonstrated. Church, I will together. So, that is the reason why the power of God is the way it is. And then we talked about, are there any questions yet? Okay. Let's just answer it before I go on. What's the question? How do you find the balance between charismatics and theology? Unquote. That is not that is not that is not going to hmm, that is not going to that is not going to either extreme both in your personal life and in ministering the gospel to others. Okay. Um there there's there's the the only extreme that can come from systematic theology and charismatics is if you are not doing either one. So, balance is to do everything that God will have you do. I don't know if that person understands what I'm saying now. So, balance is to do everything that God will have you do. So, what, what is the balance between systematic theology and charismatics? The balance is do systematic theology, study God's word, get involved in scholarship, and do rigorous study. At the same time, do your charismatics, heal the sick, Use every opportunity that you have to dispense the power of God. That is the balance. The balance is to do everything that God will have you do. So the balance is not to, let's do small theology. And the, the, let's do 30-70. No. The balance is to do 100-100. The balance is not to do 30-70. In fact, the balance is not to do 50-50. Because if you do 50-50, that means you do some systematization, you do some charismatics. No. The balance is to do 100-100. Do you know why? Because both of them, they don't mutually exclude each other. They're not in the same category of our Christian work. It's like asking, what is the balance between having a liver and having a kidney? What is the balance between having intestines and having a heart? So let's do 50% heart. So let's have half a heart. Let's have half intestine. No. You have a full heart. You have a full intestine because they are not the same thing. They're not doing the same work. In the same way, you sit down with God's word and you study rigorously like Apostle Paul taught Timothy. Study to show yourself approved. Give yourself to study. So you do rigorous study. Study God's word. Study what God's word says. Study what has to be said about God's word rigorously. And when there's an opportunity to dispense the power of God to do everything that we need to do, the same way also, the same way also, you do everything that you're meant to do. So, the balance to charismatics and um, theologizing or theology is to do them fully, 100, 100. Praise God. Uh, I, did I, is, I, is it clear the way I said that? I already said it earlier that the only excess is if you begin to focus so much on emotionalism at the expense of charismatics. That's where you can have problem. Praise God. All right. Yeah. Okay, um, Emmanuel Nwabuizi said, in the practice of the supernatural, is there a possibility to delve into New Age mysticism? How do we discern New Age mysticism from the manifestation of the things of the Spirit? 
the the way to the the way to tell the difference is the spirit that is coming from. So there was Jesus addressed something like this already. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was healing miracles, they, they said he was healing it by Beelzebub. Then Jesus now said, how can I be walking by Beelzebub and be casting out Beelzebub? A house divided against itself cannot stand, right? So, um, charismatics or the move of God's power always stems from God's word. It stems from the propagation of the word of God and the gospel. It stems from a compassionate heart, God's compassionate heart towards people. Do you understand that? So, it is from God's word. It is from the gospel. It is power that comes from the gospel. New Age mysticism is when you are now doing supernatural things from a different mindset. For example, you begin to tell people eh, the law of attraction. There's something called the law of attraction. If you close your eyes and you imagine it and you want it long enough, the thing will come into your life. Whatever happens in that kind of atmosphere is New Age mysticism. So how do you tell the difference, the word that comes from it, the spirit that comes from it, right? So progressive Christianity now and New Age mysticism, they can flow together. The broadest progressive Christianity they are doing now, the construction and all that, and New Age mysticism, they can flow together. They can actually work together. But see, the power of God to save comes from the gospel. So whenever you say the power of God is outside of the gospel of Christ, then, you know, that's how you know the difference. Any other questions? This is from Sami Sali Elenegbara. Um, he said, Sir, don't you think it would be better to put a strong barrier on emotionalistic responses not found in scripture, especially if these things can be excessive? <laughs> mm. um, I'm going to beat this boy. <laughs> right, okay, so, yes. We can actually put a barrier. We can. It is the duty of the pastor. So just like Apostle Paul did, where he actually put a barrier. Because look, look at what he said. He actually put structure. He said two people must not prophesy at the same time. If one person is speaking in tongues, one person should interpret. If three people are about to be a prophet, let them speak in tongues one after the other. And let them interpret one after the other. So you can actually do that. You can actually mandate in a meeting. Because it depends on how the meeting is going. If you are in a church gathering where you see people, they are always falling down, shouting, and they fall under the anointing and they are rolling, you can actually say, is, please don't fall. If you want to fall, you really want to fall and be rolling, go outside and do it. You can actually do that to create an atmosphere. But the danger about that is, and you have to be very, very careful of the danger, is that there's another danger of robbing people of their emotional. See, you know, people are heard of us have argued this argument tired. Jonathan Edwards and Chauncey had this argument, they had it tired. They wrote books and all kinds of theses on this matter. At the same time, there's a real danger of robbing people of enjoying their own psychological response to what God is doing in their lives. So we must be careful also not to go that excessive and have a kind of calcified um, meeting where people cannot really, you know, enjoy the presence of God. You know, because those emotionalist things also have some value, especially for baby Christians. Those things also have some value. It has some value. Even if it's 0.02 grams magnesium you are getting, it is doing something for the conduction of your heart nerves, of the nerves of your heart muscle, you know, that kind of thing. So in the same way, those things also have some value. So yes, you can put a strong barrier on the um, excesses, but make sure that as a pastor, when you are doing that, you don't do it to the detriment of the... Um, enjoyment of that. Make sure you don't do it to a detriment. We have precedence in the scripture to put a strong barrier. In fact, depend, you know, de depending on the kind of situation that you have, you can actually get to a point where things can be excessively messy. It's possible where things can be, because you know there are some crazy meetings. There are some really crazy meetings. Right? Where some people be falling down and their clothes will be removing and throwing off their clothes and they'll say it's emotionalism they are doing. You can when you get to crazy points like that, you can make very strong, you know, rules to limit it and all that. Or people that will start inducing vomiting, I've seen that one before, very disgusting. They can, they, are, they will just start, because someone has, they felt like vomiting is part of the move of the spirit and then next thing you're having a meeting and all of a sudden, everybody's going, oh God. Like that, let me just say that one now. Everybody in TEC, just hear that one now before we go too far. Don't ever vomit in any of our meetings. If you want to vomit, 
don't even <laughs> don't forbid around even try it. Yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> Let me just tell you that one now. I don't I don't permit you the spirit in fact that's I don't even permit you for that kind of emotionalism. Please. It's not even allowed. So if it is, how people are here what I've said, don't ever invite someone for a meeting, relevance meeting. If anybody wants to vomit, just hold their mouth and kick them out. They shouldn't be vomiting outside. You know. So yes, you can put strong this thing, but make sure that you don't do it at the detriment of of um, this thing. For example, people fall on, falling under the anointing is not something that is so bad and so crazy. So you can't tell people that eh, eh, you, are, you, are, you are falling under the don't fall. It's not necessary. All these kinds of things. So, yeah. So that's the answer to that. Is this up? Is satisfied? Any other questions? Yeah. All right. So, let me just continue the summary. Then we talked about the gifts of the Spirit. And um, one of the things I really, I really like to highlight from there, from, from the gifts of the Spirit, is the fact that, see, the Holy Spirit does a lot of specialty. I want you to really understand that. God's design is specialization. God's design is specialization. So when, when some of our brothers and one of our, some of our brethren say things like, the believers can do every kind of work, there's a question I want to ask them. If the ministry offices are specialized, why won't the gifts of the Spirit be specialized? Think about it. Why doesn't God just say everybody can be an apostle? If I, why didn't he say there's no apostle, everybody be a leader of the church to equip the saints? Why didn't he say that? Why did he name apostles, name prophets, name evangelists, name pastors and teachers? Why? Why? In the same way, when we talk about the gift of the Spirit, there is specialization. What, what the, in practice, what you will find is that people will excel in different kinds of gifts. You know, in a body of believers, when the church is together and there's a, you know, and we are doing meeting these kinds of needs for people, what you will find is that the Holy Spirit has allotted to people for them to excel in certain kinds of gifts. But like, like I said, or, or, or like I said the other time, we believers are moved by compassion. So because we are moved by compassion and we are moved by love for people, we can also desire those gifts to meet needs at certain times when they come up. We can desire gifts to meet needs when they come up. Do you understand that? So that, that's why I began to say that. See, there is specialization. I know people like to say, you know, my folks will say things like, um, um, the same spirit works everything in you, so you can do everything. You will do all the gifts at the same time and all that. It's not a competition. It's not a competition. There is a sense of... Um, there is a perspective of self-aggrandizement that follows, that comes with that mentality, that bets that mentality. We have to ask ourselves a question like this. Let's ask ourselves like this. When people say things like, I can manifest 10 gifts of the Spirit, why is that important to you? Why? Why is it important to you that I can do 10 gifts of the Spirit? In this meeting today, you, I'm going to give you five. You, I'm going to give you three. You, by the time we are going, you are going to have seven. Why? No, but that's not what we say in the scriptures. That's not what we say in the scriptures. So, what really should be our drive for gifts of the Spirit should be compassion. When we see a need, notice I didn't say empathy. I said compassion. That means that you love someone. And you see something happening in their lives that is not good. And you want to help them. So when you desire gift of the spirit from that perspective, to meet that need, you can now supply and meet their need. So the number of gifts of the spirit is completely relevant. If you understand the tone of Apostle Paul's letters, look at Romans chapter 12. He says you should not prophesy more than the grace that is given to you. You see, according to the faith that is given to you, let every man stay in his gifts. Apostle Paul is almost suggesting like as if once you see God doing something in your life, it's better for you to focus on it and do it well and do it to meet the need in the house. Obviously, what he said in Romans chapter 12 does not counter 
what it says in First Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14 because it said we can desire. So they are not opposite of each other, but they are emphasizing something. So in Romans chapter 12, he was emphasizing that, see, according to what God has given you, stay in it, enjoy. See, the one that God has given you safe, how much have you met people's need with it? That you are now coming to form, I must do 10, I can do 7, I can do 6. The funny thing is that there are no 9 gifts. There are no 9. There are plenty, we don't know how many. Because it is every ability that the Spirit of God gives. There are no 9. Hallelujah. They are not. Is it 9 or 12? That we think of them traditionally. 3, 3, 3. They are 9. Yeah. They are not 9. 3, 3, yeah. 3, 3, 3. They are not 9. You say, no, I will have 7. So they must have 6 of the 9. No. That's not the idea. The idea is that, see, God is doing a work among his people. And the Spirit of God moves and empowers people to meet those needs. So, if there's no need in the church, then there's no need for it. So all those I'm getting the gifts to show off, to show off for what? That's what leads to all these empty competitions of calling believers meeting. And I say, you prophesy, and then you prophesy, and we all know in our hearts that what the person is prophesying is not something. It's not as if it's no, it's not as if the person is saying rubbish, but we know that it's, it's, it's just anyway, if you preach God's word, they are prophesying on it. <laughs> but you know, we all know that this is the way they talk, now message you they preach. Now message you they preach. We know. I say you must interpret tongues. You come out and interpret his tongue. Ha ha. Ha ha. That's it. And, and, and the funny thing is that the interpretation is very clear. Anyway, that's how the, spirit of the, the things of the spirit work. You see that the person's interpretation is, we know it's based on the person's level. The worded people, their own interpretation will be worded. People that don't have word, their interpretation will not be worded. And it's always vague. Then it's specific. And it always comes from the person's morning devotion. <laughs> Right? Because that's not what it's meant for. It's meant to meet a need. It's meant to meet a need. So, you know, I'm saying that to stress. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, um, you know, we should not desire gifts and all that. No, I'm saying that to stress. That the spirit behind our desire of gifts must be for, for, for reason of compassion because we love people and because we want to meet their need. Do you understand? So, if that is your focus, the number of gifts you have will be immaterial. What, what is the point of having plenty of gifts? It is immaterial. What you need is to reach people. In fact, if you find, find out that you're in a place where the kind of need that people have is for a particular gift, then you might never use the other gifts in your entire life. It doesn't matter because you are focused on a gift. Do you understand that? For example, imagine being in a society where they have excellent health care, they exercise, they have good health-seeking behavior, they have good culture vis-a-vis -vis, um, health. So they live long. So you know there are some countries in, in the world today now that their life expectancy is like 90-something. So imagine you're living in that kind of country, right? So and you, you know say because of those that had, you, you find yourself in that kind of country, the kind of problem that they have is that they're always committing suicide because they are bored. They have existential boredom. They're committing suicide, they're confused, they don't know anything about God again. See, you will not find that in that kind of place, that word of wisdom, the ability to enter into a person's heart and be speaking their mind. Sometimes we... See, these gifts in operation are not like that. Though. You see, I'm doing word of knowledge. Not, I'm not, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Though. In real life, you are addressing someone and you are talking to the person. And the body spirit grants you access to be able to see how they are thinking in their hearts. And you are also solving the problems of your heart. See, you know, it's like word of nature, word of knowledge, word of wisdom with prophesying and telling them how their life will go out, will turn out to be. You are is everything. Word of knowledge plus word of wisdom. It's hard to even start saying this is the word of knowledge in it. This is the word of wisdom in it. This is the prophecy. You can't. That's the simple truth. <laughs> Praise God. So you, if you find yourself in that kind of society, like the, the one I just described now, what you will find is that you find yourself doing like all those, you will do find yourself doing more of those things where you are reaching the hearts of people, touching the hearts of people via those kinds of gifts. You will find in that kind of place that gift of healing is not spectacular. If you lay hands on someone that has migraine, the person will say thank you. Church out together. So, 
our desire for this gift must come from a place of compassion and desire to meet need. And as you do that, actually the power of God will also be supplied. Hallelujah. Then we talked about the, you know, the gift of this. We talked about um, speaking with tongues. And we talked about how it's a, it's a wonderful gift that God has given us. Um, when you speak in tongues, speaking in tongues is something like this. It is a place whereby your heart is in pure expression with the Spirit of God that is inside of you. That means your spirit is in pure expression of the Spirit of God. So your spirit is praying and the Holy Spirit is interceding on behalf of your, of your spirit. And then in that place of that, as that is happening, utterance is given and then you speak ecstatic words which cannot be understood or not which cannot be understood, which is not, which may not be understood by the speaker or by those that are hearing them in that current place. Hallelujah. So that is what it is. So someone can speak in tongues. Someone can be praying in the spirit in their heart. That means their, their spirit is in, their consciousness, their spirit is in communion with the Holy Ghost and then God gives them utterance from that whereby they speak words that are not intelligible to those that are, you know, are, that are in that place. Hallelujah. And so they are praying. You know, that is a kind of prayer. Hallelujah. And then we said that it is impossible to see, based on the scriptures and the evidence of the scripture, it is actually impossible to ever call speaking in tongues um, gibberish. You cannot call speaking in tongues gibberish. The best you can say is that the people that are here cannot understand it. Praise God. People that are in that meeting cannot understand it. The people in that meeting cannot understand it. So you are not, you are not justified to think or speaking in tongues as gibberish. That idea of thinking of thinking or speaking in tongues as gibberish, that the words you are speaking are meaningless, but your spirit is praying. You are speaking meaningless words, but your spirit is praying. Is the mentality that makes people to feel that Acts chapter 2, what they were speaking was something meaningless. Then after they spoke something meaningless, God now enabled them to speak something meaningful to people. You know, that's the mentality. That's what people feel. That when you, are, when you are speaking in tongues, what you are saying is meaningless. But what you, your spirit is praying inside is meaningful. So after saying something meaningless, the Holy Spirit will now help you to say something meaningful. That is the interpretation. That's not what the Bible says. That's what Apostle Paul said. What Apostle Paul describes is very clear. He said, when you speak in tongues, you are actually speaking mysteries. You are saying something that people there do not understand. So that's how we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is not contrary to Acts chapter 2. Many people have interpreted Acts chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as to mean that speaking in tongues is speaking gibberish. So therefore, the people in Acts chapter 2 must have been speaking gibberish. And then they interpreted what they, the gibberish they said. No. That tension is completely unnecessary because that tension is what makes people to try to go and misinterpret and force interpret Acts chapter 2 to mean something else. No. Acts chapter 14, Apostle Paul tells us that when you speak in tongues, you speak mysteries. It's your understanding that is unfruitful. So when you are saying, speaking in tongues, you are saying something. The people you are saying it to may understand. The people you are speaking, the people that are dear with you may understand or they may not understand. But somebody will understand. So the Holy Spirit can also help you to understand what you have said that you never prior, you never had prior understanding of the knowledge of it. So that must give us a sense of, of sense of honor and reverence. It's also the reason why many people, when they are praying in the spirit, they began to use their mouths to say gibberish because they don't believe that what they are saying is meaningful. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I just said now? It is that mentality that makes people to, when they are speaking in tongues, they'll say, because in their mind, what speaking in tongues is cuckoo gibberish. No, at that point, you're not speaking in tongues. You are praying in the spirit. There's a difference. At that point, in your heart, you are praying in the spirit. But what you are saying is gibberish. It doesn't have to be. What Apostle Paul calls speaking in tongues, what the Bible describes as speaking in tongues, is actually speaking something. So, so if, if, if um, and that is the reason why you, should, you need to understand that, okay, speaking in tongues or speaking in tongues is not the only way to pray in the Spirit. You can actually pray in the Spirit and be mute. Do you understand that? 
For example, a person that is vocally mute can pray in the spirit. Praise God. Uh, exactly. Before we take the question. So praying in the spirit happens inside. Speaking in tongues happens outside. Do you understand that? So please, when don't 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 say gibberish when you're praying in the spirit. Be deliberate about speaking in tongues. Don't pray gibberish. Don't say gibberish when you are speaking, praying in the Spirit. Be deliberate about speaking in tongues because that's what the Bible, that's what the apostles did. Church all together. That's what the apostles did. Don't say, no man understands, therefore I am permitted to speak gibberish. No. Don't speak gibberish. You can speak in tongues. Do you understand? You can speak in tongues. Don't speak gibberish. You can speak in tongues. Praise God. Continue. Samisal, you said, Sir, why is it popular for people to state a prayer point in their understanding and then proceed to pray the prayer point out in tongues? In that scenario, are we really praying out the prayer point or are we just edifying ourselves? <laughs> it's a good question. But, so, um, the praying in the tongues... If someone prays, gives you a prayer point, he has given you something to steer your desire towards. Since praying in tongues, or pray, let me say praying in the spirit, because, you know, is be careful. As long as you're not speaking gibberish, let's assume that the person is actually praying in tongues. If you are praying the prayer for yourself or even for anybody and all that, as long as at that point when you are praying the prayer, you are not praying the prayer towards the church. You are praying it to yourself. And that's fine. So, I can tell you, I want all of you here, let's pray about this topic in the understanding, of course, obviously, because that's what we all understand. Let's pray about this topic, and then we pray to ourselves in, you know, we are praying within ourselves to God in tongues. That's fine. Where there will be a problem is one person is leading all of us, or where the, in fact, this is the problem. When there's a prayer point and the person comes to lead the prayer points with tongues and say, That's, you know, that's a problem. Right, because we don't understand what the person has said. We don't understand what the person has said. Hallelujah. So, you can, of course you can raise a prayer point in the understanding and then um, allow people to pray in the spirit. But when the person is now praying towards the church, when the person is praying towards the church where everybody can hear, then they have to pray it in the understanding. Do you understand that? I hope that's clear for some. We are praying towards people, we are leading people. And you can now pray it in the understanding. But if you are praying, you know, for yourself, not for the um, for you know, when you're not praying, how which which preposition should I use? Yeah. When you're not leading, when you're not leading people in the prayer, you can pray it in tongues because it's between you and God. You're not just edifying yourself. When Apostle Paul says that he that prays in the spirit, spirit that prays in tongues edifies himself, he's not saying that the only thing you are doing is edifying yourself. Is you are also praying, you're also praying in the spirit. You're also petitioning. You're also making intercession. You're also making supplication. You understand? So, yes, you can lead in the Spirit and then pray. When you're, not, when you're not leading the church in prayer, pray in the Spirit. You can lead in understanding and then pray in the Spirit. Is that right? So, what were we saying about tongues? Where was I? So, I was saying that, see, when you are praying in the tongues, do not think of it as if you are saying gibberish. Have honor for it. Do you understand? Be aware that you are actually uttering mysteries. Don't just speak gibberish when you are praying in the spirit. Don't just let gibberish come out and you don't have any honor for it and all that. Don't do gibberish. Actually pray in tongues. Be deliberate about praying in tongues. When, you are, when, you, when your tongues changes from gibberish to tongues, I don't know. I, I can't know except God's giving you understanding, right? I cannot know. But you have to be deliberate about it. Don't just say, blah, 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 blah. see, you might be doing blah, 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 the truth is that you are still praying in the spirit inside. That's the truth. Because a person can be silent and be praying in the spirit inside. But what was described in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 are people that were praying in the spirit and were uttering tongues. They were uttering a language. That faculty is available for believers. But you have to be deliberate about it. So please, don't say Acts chapter 2. They were saying gibberish. And then they now interpreted it later. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that they actually spoke in the language that those people were born with. 
and the languages they were born with was not Jewish. Was not Aramaic. In fact, there was no Jewish language at that time. There was only Aramaic, there was Greek. There was no Hebrew. Long, the ancient Hebrew language had died. So what he had was this weird, um, you know, um, language that was a union of um, the Samaritan language versus um, the Samaritan language versus some of the Jewish words that they now call it Aramaic. So, and this is 800 years after the dispersal. So all the people there were not speaking Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of those that were in Jerusalem. Those people that came from all those countries were not speaking Aramaic. They were speaking the languages of the countries that their ancestors have been for 800 years since the exile. There is no way to look at Acts chapter 2 that suggests that I've checked. There is no way to look at Acts chapter 2 that suggests that they were speaking gibberish and then they now interpreted it later. No. They spoke in an actual language. The reason why it was not a mystery at that point, was because the languages that the Holy Spirit gave them to utter were languages that people that could understand it were there. But when you are in a local church of Yoruba people and you are speaking Persian, nobody will understand you. If you are in a local church of Yoruba people or Igbo people and you speak Chinese, we will not understand you except the Holy Spirit enables a person to understand. Do you understand that? So based on this understanding, you know, I would say that most of the time, when people are speaking, when people say they are speaking with tongues, they are actually just doing glossolalia. That means they are just speaking gibberish. They are not doing xenolalia. They are just speaking gibberish because they believe that it's gibberish they are saying. So they are just speaking gibberish. It doesn't mean they are not speaking, praying in the spirit. Do you understand that? They are still praying in the spirit though. But don't do that. Don't do that. Be deliberate about it. Hallelujah. Church out together. Are we here? So, um, finally, finally, we talked about um, the beauty of the God's gifts, and we said that the gifts were given to be a persuasion to persuade us that the power of God is available, that, you know, the power of God always follows his will, and there are also God's way of meeting needs to bless people's lives. God uses it to meet needs, to bless people because Jesus, and you know, God our Father is compassionate towards us. He's compassionate towards us. So because of that, he releases his power to demonstrate his compassion, to meet needs, to do stuff in our lives because Jesus is not interested in our, in our meaningless suffering. The Bible tells us that um, he's a high priest who is very aware of our infirmities, having been someone like us. Praise God. So that is the reason why the power of God is always released, you know, to meet needs among people. So, those two legs that the gift of the Spirit stand on should give you all the persuasion you need when we are together as believers, that God will meet needs amongst us. That God will do mighty things amongst us. It should give us all the persuasion. Number one, because God is supplying evidence for the gospel and number two, because God loves his people and he wants to meet their needs. That should give you all the faith you need. All the confidence to look at God's people and to say, see, God will touch you. God will change your life. And trust God that God will actually do something. Listen to me. Don't get it twisted. Though. Miracles do happen. I know there's a lot of fake out there. There are a lot of charlatans that, can, that have made a lot of people to become skeptical. But don't get it twisted. Miracles do happen. Me, I've seen miracles happen. Hmm. Miracles do happen. I know also, there are two things that make people skeptical. Number one, because there are a lot of charlatans that do a lot of rubbish. The second reason is because they have had a lot of bad experiences where things did not actually change. Right? But that does not still negate the facts. It doesn't still negate the facts. It doesn't still negate the facts that these things happen. Some people have entered spontaneous cancer remission. It happens. Spontaneous cancer remission that doctors don't understand how. It happens. Heart conditions have been healed. It happens. Lame people Walk, documented, hard, real evidence. 
blind eyes. They've done fondoscopy like this. They've done the fondoscopy. They've seen that the retina is gone. And the retina will regenerate. Nobody knows why and how. Real miracles. They do happen. So, you know, don't let those two things lead you to um, reject the possibility of God doing miraculous things in the life of his people. We do, it, is not, it is not something we live on. We live on God's word. But it's also um, bread and butter for children that they can enjoy. Hallelujah. Church, out together. Are there any other questions? If there are no other questions, we're going to close here. We'll sing some songs. And then we'll close here. Next week, son, next week Wednesday, we're going to do some church history stuff. There are some popular things that have been misunderstood about church history. We'll address one of them next week, Sunday, to clear up what has popularly become, what has become a popular, you know, misunderstanding about that um, aspect of church history. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.